Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzis. Thank you for listening. Maybe laughter can help end the pandemic. That idea is central to a new partnership between the CDC and Das Garage Comedy Improv Theater. Later this hour, Tim Stoltenberg, the new artistic director at Dad's Garage, will tell us about their innovative collaboration to get more people vaccinated. Tim has an impressive vision for Dad's. We'll hear about his years as an improviser with the Atlanta Company, as well as his successful career with Second City, the mothership of comedy improv. First, about turning 60 years old, pianist Stephen Huff recently told an interviewer he heard people are most creative in their 60s and 70s, so bring it on. Let's say that's a rather high bar, considering the artistic output of this extraordinary pianist, composer, author, painter, and scholar. He performed with the Atlanta Symphony last month, but due to Omicron, there was no live audience. The concert will stream on the ASO's website this Friday, February 4th. Stephen Huff also has a new recording of The Complete Nocturnes of Frederick Chopin. Stephen Huff, welcome back to City Lights. Thank you, Lois. What a joy it is to be, even though we're not together in person right now, it feels a wonderful connection with a city that I've always loved visiting, so it's great to be talking to you. Why, thank you. Chopin adored the music of Vincenzo Bellini, the great opera composer. And you have written of Chopin's music that every phrase must come from the throat and lungs as much as from the fingers and arms. Would you tell us why singing is essential to Chopin? Well, Lois, I think it's mainly because that's what Chopin loved. You know, he may have liked concerts and piano music and violins and whatever, but he really loved singers. So his great joy was to be at the opera house and to hear these great bel canto operas, Bellini, Donizetti, Rossini, that whole period. And I think you hear this in all of his music, but to me, particularly in the nocturnes, there's something of the coloratura aria about all of these, where he decorates things with these wonderful filigree passages. Sounds to me just like the most wonderful diva of his time showing off on stage in a wonderful costume. So I think that connection is actually very important to understanding the world of these pieces. Oh, I could not agree with you more about the nocturnes being the most lyrical and perhaps the most poetic as well, although he did write for ballads and the ballad form certainly points back to poetry, but the lyricism and poetry in the Nocturnes is unmatched, I think. I'm so 
excited that you came out with this recording. Let's start with the Nocturne in E flat, opus nine, number two. It sounds like an aria from the outset. And then this beautiful singing line gets increasingly ornamented. What are your thoughts about this very popular piece? Well, I think you can hear Chopin playing it in your imagination because obviously the piano was developing at this time. So it wasn't so far in the, in the distance that we were, were talking about the forte piano and the piano that we've heard on recent recordings of, of Beethoven's works where the hammers had only just become felt. I mean, they'd been leather and indeed, you know, not many decades before that, we were talking about the harpsichord. So we have with Chopin this Pleyel piano from Paris uh, in the early decades of the, the 19th century. And I think Chopin must have played it so wonderfully. So it's, it's kind of an extension of his own wonderful pianism, his own love for the human voice, and his own ability to create these melodies that here we are 200 years later, still touched by them. And I find that something very, very touching for me, this, this sense that music reaches across the centuries, that it unites those who are dead, those who are alive, and this wonderful human connection. To me, it's the great argument why we need to keep playing Chopin as well as contemporary music, but that music that was written 200 years ago is still relevant today. It still connects with the same human emotions that, that people in Chopin's time had. Mm. The Nocturne in D-flat, Opus 27, number two, is among the most exquisite of Chopin's works. Years ago, I saw a documentary about pianist Arthur Rubinstein, and in the film he said, whenever I play Chopin, suddenly it's like fine perfume coming out of the piano. <laughs> How would you describe this piece, this scent of the nocturne in D-flat, opus 27, number two? Well, maybe we should find a different perfume for each of the nocturnes. You know, <laughs> we could go through the whole range of Guerlain and find the exact scent that would match the ones. I think if it were that, this one would probably be uh, one of the headier, richer ones, maybe the uh, Après Londe, which is the one with a lot of violets. Because, as you say, this is one of the most exquisite, one of the most popular ones. And it reaches this wonderful climax in the middle, this very passionate moment. Also, this fantastic dying down on the last page where he just winds the piece down to the final very soft chord. I don't know what, how long it lasts, three and a half minutes, four minutes, but you feel like you've experienced a whole opera in that time because it's, it's such a perfect form. This is a thing about Chopin for me. It's not just that he wrote beautiful tunes, but he was a great craftsman. He was a great composer had a, and a real technical sense of proportion, like the greatest of, of architects. And, and I think you hear that very much in this piece. And actually on my recording, 
I've incorporated, I think in three different places, decorations that Chopin wrote himself in students' copies that are not in the original printed score, but they were ideas that he came up with later. And I think they're really quite exquisite. They, they show him as the improviser that in a sense, his pieces were never really finished. Um, they were always under the hand of the recreator who was playing them at the piano. Where did you see those manuscripts? Well, they're now published in the new Polish edition, oh. which is edited by the late Jan Ekia, who was the great Chopin scholar and, and, and teacher of the last 50 years, really. But he brought out these editions of all Chopin's works. And, and these were, you know, many of them in the copy of Jane Sterling, who was his Scottish student who also helped him out tremendously financially. She was a very rich aristocratic lady from near Edinburgh and she paid for his funeral and she paid for all sorts of things that uh, she didn't tell anyone about. But she also had these scores that she treasured and, and in them are many of Chopin's little pencil notations of, of different changes and adaptations. So I thought it was nice to include those on, on this recording. Oh, yes. I just attributed that filigree to your playing. <laughs> no, it, it, they are absolutely authentic. Wow. I'm going through my favorites. We'll get to yours. <laughs> the Nocturne in C minor, opus 48, number one, is astonishing in its dramatic intensity, I think. And I wondered if you thought it far-fetched that the syncopation in the beginning is almost like gasping. I mean, we know that Chopin died of tuberculosis consumption, as it was called then. Does that seem ridiculous? No, no, I don't think it does at all. I think it's certainly a way of singing that line, that between each note, you need to take a breath. And I think the idea that that breath might be not so easy to take, as you say, gasping, there's something very pertinent about that. And in a way, it seems to me like a bit of a funeral march, this piece. You know, it has this, most of the nocturnes have these flowing accompaniments in the left hand. This one has these striding chords that feel very much to me like some people walking along carrying a coffin, if you like. section has this incredible well it begins very softly with a sort of hymn-like tune still with a march quality to it and then it, it bursts of course and gets louder and louder into this great big climax and then you hear the opening material again but in this kind of very hasty impatient sort of anxious way and it's a brilliant rethinking and recreation of that opening theme You know, Chopin is such an original. He never repeats himself. And working on these actually during the lockdown period, because we, we recorded these when London was pretty much closed down, but we managed to get a, a situation where we could be safe and, and legal. And, and so we, we recorded this at the Queen Elizabeth Hall in London. I just being every day absorbed in these pieces, my admiration for Chopin just increased and increased. 
and, and I just became so overwhelmed by these works. And I'm grateful in one sense to the pandemic for that, because I don't think I could have had quite the same feeling if I'd been traveling around and having the life that I used to live. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitz, speaking with the pianist and composer Stephen Huff. His virtual performance will be available for streaming on the ASO website this Friday, February 4th. In addition to your own composition, you released the Schumann recording and the Chopin Nocturne still in 21. Was there a recording earlier this year, too? Uh, well, we did six recordings last year. Six actually. recordings. Yeah. So as you mentioned, the Schumann, uh, the Fantasy and the Kreiseriana, and then this Chopin disc also just came out, the Brahms Clarinet Sonatas with Michael Collins. That was for the BIS label, the Swedish label. I also recorded the Elgar Violin Sonata with Renaud Capuçon for Warner, and then still to be released next year are three Schubert Sonatas, and also the complete uh, Musica Cayada of Mompo, which Ooh. was the last thing that I, I recorded that was towards the end of last year. So it was a busy year. I was very happy to have this work to do. The head of my record company, Simon Perry, phoned me I think the day that London went into, into lockdown and he said, well, look, if we can do this safely and legally, are you interested in making any records at this time? And I thought, well, yes, this is exactly what would take my mind off, you know, being locked away. Uh, what a marvelous thing. So we, we set up and, and did these recordings and uh, it was a, a most wonderful thing to be able to do. Oh my, six recordings, goodness. Well, I guess that is making the proverbial lemonade out of lemons. <laughs> Stephen, I dominated the first part of this conversation with three of my favorites. Are there nocturnes you would particularly like to talk about? Well, let's add three more. The last three, the Opus 55, number two in E-flat major, this is Chopin at his most fascinating contrapuntally. This piece is woven together of, I don't know how many lines, but they seem to, to spin around each other and rather like a very complex tapestry. You don't know which thread is it behind which other thread. And it creates this incredible fabric, this ecstatic coat of many colors. So I love that one particularly. And then I'd have to say the last two that he wrote, the upper 62s, the B major and the final one, the E major. I think there's something, I think when you get to the point when you actually can't put into words the mood, then you know that you've hit something profound. those two is it regret are they sad are they joy well they're not joyful do they look into the past with gratitude with regret it's impossible to say but they're two of the most exquisite piano pieces ever written and you know when the when the first one the b major opera 62 number one comes back uh, the entire theme is one long set of trills it's very challenging to play because these trills have to sound like they're just one long breath
but it's the most wonderful moment. And then again with the coda, it's, I find it very hard to play this without tears forming in my eyes. Oh my. And that's how this C minor opus 48 strikes me. I just remember crying at the beauty of it the first time yeah. I ever heard it. Yeah, no, it's great. You have a great story about Chopin and a bowler hat. Would you share it? <laughs> well, it all came about because there was a photograph that a friend took of me in, in the Chicago Art Institute, yeah, standing in front of this Rothko painting, this wonderful orange painting with a bowler hat on. And I thought it would make a wonderful cover for a CD. And so when I came to make my late masterpieces Chopin CD, I suggested it to Simon Perry. And he said, well, what's this got to do with Chopin? So I thought, okay, well, there's my challenge. So I wrote this essay connecting Chopin, Mark Rothko, and the bowler hat, partly as a tongue-in-cheek thing to make him realize that, that there was a possible connection. It, it certainly was not meant like that. But I realized that where Chopin stayed when he was in London, he was here for quite a few months. He was staying in St. James's in the center, just off Piccadilly, and the house is there. Now you can go and see it has a plaque on. And it's about a three minute walk from his front door to the place where the bowler hat was invented. And that's also still there, the Locks Hat Company. And they made this hat for a man who, who wanted a hat so that he could ride and not bang his head on the trees as he was riding along in the park uh, with his hunting. So that was the origin of the bowler hat. So it just struck me that, that Chopin was, was sort of there in, in the, exactly the same neighborhood when the bowler hat was being invented. And then, of course, Mark Rothko was Slavic, was from Russia and arrived in America and changed his name uh, to Rothko to make it a little bit more simple. So there was sort of a connection between the three things. But when I'm really looking at it carefully, of course, I don't think there's a photograph of Chopin wearing a bowler hat, but maybe someone can find one. I don't know. <laughs> Were there photographs? I guess it would have been a daguerreotype. Yeah, there are some of those on the right, from right at the end of his life, because he died in 1849. So not real photographs, but uh, they give us a good likeness of him. You have recorded the complete works of Camille Saint-Saëns, and you will perform the piano concerto number four with the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra. I've often felt that Saint-Saëns gets short shrift, that he really deserves greater recognition for refinement as well as the wit and charm of his music. I couldn't agree more, Lois. He was a wonderful craftsman, he was the only representative, actually, of romantic piano concertos in France, but of a name that you would know. I mean, there were other pieces written, of course, in the 19th century, but, but Sansos wrote these five concertos. He writes beautifully for the piano. Uh, the actual use of, of harmony and of texture is always so refined and beautiful. And he makes such a lot of color out of very diatonic harmonies. I mean, diatonic without chromaticism, without harmony that's very rich. It's very plain in a way, it's very meat and potatoes, but you get the most wonderful steak and the most delicious potatoes from Sansot. So 
well-crafted. I was just listening to his two piano trios the other day. Page after page, there are no sharps and flats. It's just all in the key. I mean, in one of them in E minor and the other one in, in F major. But within that very restricted harmonic palette, he, he creates such color and, and variety. And I guess of the five, the fifth is the most famous, nicknamed the Egyptian Concerto. What's distinctive about the four? Yes, the fifth these days is played more. I think in the past, the second probably was the most famous. Oh, the G minor. The G minor, yeah, because that was one of Rubinstein's party pieces and he played it his whole career, right at the end as well. I think in some ways the fourth is the most musically interesting of, of all four. The fifth, of course, has a lot of color and it's incredibly imaginative with all of these effects and gongs and, and weird Middle Eastern harmonies. but. I think the fourth is the most symphonic, and in, in many ways it reminds me of the great organ symphony. There are certain similarities to it. piece to play. It's very difficult. It's actually much harder to play than the fifth, but it's full of, of, of wonderful things and has this joyous last movement that's just absolutely sun blazing in the sky, not a cloud, and it, it, it really is it's so thrilling, I think, to hear that last movement. Pianist, composer, and author Stephen Hoff. His recent performance with the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra will be available for streaming on the ASO's website this Friday, February 4th. Speaking of Chopin and pianos, First Presbyterian Church presents a dedication concert of their beautiful new Steinway D piano with the international Chopin Prize winner Charles-Richard Amelin playing music by Mozart, Ravel, Franck, and Chopin. That in-person-only concert will be at 8 o'clock Friday evening. The church is across from the High Museum on Peachtree. More information at firstpressatl.org. In a moment, we'll hear about the partnership between the CDC and local improv comedy theater, Dad's Garage, as we speak with their new artistic director, Tim Stoltenberg. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here.
In December of 2020, when artistic director John Carr left Dad's Garage to become the executive producer for Second City Theaters and moved to Chicago, longtime improviser Tim Stoltenberg stepped into that role as the interim artistic director. Now Tim has been named permanent artistic director of Dad's Garage Comedy Improv Theater. He joins us now via Zoom. Tim, welcome back to City Lights and congratulations. Thank you, Lois. It's an honor and a pleasure to, to be able to speak with you and to be back at Dad's Garage. Yeah, fantastic. Now, as interim director at Dad's, you spearheaded many impressive projects during uncertain times. Outdoor drive-in improv shows, to name just one, as well as the return of indoor stage programming. Looking back, what was it like for you to step into the role in the midst of the pandemic? You know, it was tough because there is no uh, training or manual for how to run a theater during a pandemic. <laughs> you yeah. think? It was a lot of, should we try this? I think it might work. I think the one thing that stood out was the people that are at Dad's already are great and were so supportive. And I got to come into that environment with that sort of support from everybody, which made the job so much easier. And since I had some relationships with folks previously, too, that helped, too. And I think supporting one another's ideas and attempts of doing live theater again was the biggest thing that we had to, to use that allowed us to get back up doing outdoor or indoor or whatever the idea was. My impression is that when John signed on to be artistic director, he didn't expect to be leaving dads when he did, that the Second City offer was too good to refuse, to quote the Godfather. <laughs> so it must have been dizzying for you to come on board and have to sort of improvise as you were going along. Is that correct? Yeah, it was totally out of the blue. I had moved back to Wisconsin with my folks on our small farm during the pandemic. And I was just doing some farm work. I did a couple shifts at a sweet corn factory for a little while. And wait, about two wait, weeks wait, later, a sweet corn. Factory. Oh, okay. I thought you said porn. <laughs> and I thought, Oh, this is interesting. <laughs> so not just sweet corn, got yeah. it. But I don't know, a sweet corn factory might be just as interesting as a sweet porn factory. I'm not sure. <laughs> I've only had the experience in a sweet corn factory. Okay. Yeah, so it, it was totally out of the blue. And then dad started talking to me about what was going on. And John and I spoke and it worked out like I had the time and I was very interested in coming back to dad's in some fashion. And I was doing the job remotely for oof, six months before I actually got down to Atlanta. Oh, it seems so long ago that is pre-vaccine. Speaking of vaccines, congratulations are in order again for a huge project that you will direct. Can you talk about the CDC Foundation grant? Yeah, so the CDC has been trying to work with arts organizations to support vaccination information and awareness. And we were lucky enough to now be a part of this work with that grant. And we're going to use comedy and improv to create an environment where people can come in, have some laughs, because it's been a very stressful two years, and get some information about the vaccinations. And hopefully from that, they'll become supporters of the vaccination and can set up an appointment to, to get their shots. So we're real excited to be able to offer people some laughter, some comedy, and, and some really tough times, and also provide some public health safety for them. How did this come about? Did you or folks at the ensemble think we can be serving the greater good with our comedy? Or did CDC come to you? 
I think MFT, I think, found this and got us to be aware of it for us to be like, all right, we should pursue this. And, and it was a long process of going back and forth with the CDC of like, okay, what would work? How can we make this work? So, you know, dads has great ideas and this is one of them. And if you would have told me two years ago to be like, Tim, we're going to do some shows about public health safety for vaccinations. I would have been like, I, you're going to what? <laughs> so one of those things that from this pandemic, an opportunity came out to use improv and comedy to go into communities, give people some laughter and also, you know, try to get people vaccinated so they're safe. So you said MFT. This was the brainchild of marketing communications director Matt Terrell. Yeah, the man behind the curtains. He's always there and always has uh, an interesting idea for us. And an ideal fit with your organization because Matt is great at taking art to the intersection of other realms, social justice, in this case, public health. I think it's just fantastic. How will the shows work, though? How, how will you create shows with public health experts? Will the scientists be on stage? Yeah. So, you know, we're experts in comedy and improv, but uh, I don't claim to be an expert in public health, safety or vaccination. Really? Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> One of the skills I, did, I have not picked up yet. <laughs> so the expert is there to provide that information for folks to maybe help them understand some of their concerns about it. So that'll be good. And then, so they'll have a chance to talk and share. And then we're going to use sort of their information to improvise scenes based off that. We're not reenacting what they're talking about. We're sort of taking themes and ideas and exploring those and, you know, comedic and, and improv scenes. It might be similar to the show Story Spot. I think if that helps put it in context, I'll show you uh, we were part of. For listeners who may not be familiar, would you explain? Well, if I understand story spot is people share stories about something and then we, we kind of hear more about that. And MFT is is helping me with a story that you told about getting a bug bite and then going <laughs> to the hospital. Yes. I almost died. Yeah. So it's like getting people that information so that they can make a choice that best helps them in their in their safety. Wear a mask get vaccinated, be mindful of crowds, you know, as much as you can just to slowly help us get out of this pandemic. And I think comedy is a part of the puzzle with any work that is hard and heavy stuff too, you know, with racial injustices, the pandemic, and that's continuous. Comedy can provide a little levity and a little break for people just to laugh. But also I think there's something really powerful in laughter is when you get a bunch of strangers in a room who don't know each other and may not agree on everything, but you can unite them in something positive like laughter. That's the base of agreement. They're, they're agreeing to engage in this together. And I think that really gives people hope and gives people strength to leave the theater and go back out there and face those really tough obstacles that we have. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes, and my guest is Tim Stoltenberg, the new artistic director of Dad's Garage. It was a pleasure to read that democracy is alive and well at Dad's Garage. I've read that Dad's shows are developed based on input and feedback from the ensemble. So you are not a benevolent king overlord. How do you facilitate the feedback and input? You know, the ensemble and the featured performers at Dad's are, to me, some of the most talented and creative people that I get to work with. So yeah, it's not me as the traditional artistic director saying, uh, this is what we're going to do, or I, I like this play. It's the ensemble. It's it's the voices of the people who are there to be like, we, we want to explore this idea, or we want to write a show about this. I think my job is to help guide ideas to finish, to get that script up or to get it written. And it's really interesting 
when we get together to hear ideas exchange of like, oh, I, I never thought about it that way. Or like, I never even thought that was an interesting idea, but how you approach it is really fascinating. I think that's what makes dad so special is that it's an ensemble based theater. It's, it's the people coming up with ideas that excite us that we know will excite our audiences to have them come in and, and share what we find is really funny. I said this for years at, at dad's when I was there uh, years ago, Dad's gave me my like artistic purpose. And I remember being in an improv show at 280 Elizabeth Street and looking out into the audience on the stage and seeing these people just laughing together, uniting in, in something positive. And I, I was amazed at like, wow, these people paid their hard earned money to come watch me and my friends just make stuff up. And it was such an amazing experience that like planted the seed of like, this is why I want to do this work. It's like, there is something so humbling to be part of that process of bringing people together, giving them a positive experience. And then hopefully when they leave that theater, they continue to talk about what they saw or what they experienced. And that's the best way I think for people to connect is communication. So can you give us a little bit more about your timeline when you were at Dad's, I know you worked with Second City mm -hmm. yourself in Chicago for five years, and you taught at the Goodman Theater, quite illustrious. When were you at Dad's as an improviser? Oh, uh, I showed up at Dad's in 01, 02, I think. You were a baby. You toddled into Dad's. Oh, Oh, such a young, naive boy. It's a little baby improviser. Huh? <laughs> I was taking classes with Tommy Futch at Laughing Matters, and, and Tommy and I became friends. And one day after class, Tommy was like, I think you need to go to dad's. And I was like, oh, yeah, why is that? And he was like, I, th I just think you would, you would fit that sort of style of what they're trying to go with. And I was like, okay. And I went there and he was right. I saw Scandal, the improvised soap opera <laughs> I saw and I couldn't believe what I was watching. I'd never seen anything like it. And after that, I was hooked. And I took classes at Dad's and then uh, became an ensemble member. And then I was improv director for four years and until I left in 08 to go tour with Second City. Mm. Previous Dad's directors have made their marks, their yes and, through connections with Kevin Gillies over 10 years. Dad's developed quite a Canadian connection, an illustrious one. Will some of those illustrious talents, Colin Mockery comes to mind, will, will they continue during your administration, Tim? I hope so. Absolutely. The, the people that Dad's has made connections with through the years, I think are lifelong connections. You know, Mark Muir, uh, Colin, people that Kevin could bring down. Now they're, you know, they're supporters of Dad's, so they want to come back too. And yeah, we will continue to bring names like that down and continue to develop more relationships with people, maybe even more Canadians. There you go. I have a request for Canadians. You think you could get Eugene Levy down? Wow. Do you think you could get Dan Levy down? You know what? We can always ask. <laughs> that would be incredible for them to come down. And, you know, with their connection with improv and comedy and with Eugene, with his connection with Second City and uh, in Toronto. Yes. yes. I've heard that he is extremely generous. We'll find out, I guess. Yeah, there you go, Tim. Tell him I said so. Tell him Lois, who he doesn't know from Borscht, heard he's very generous. But in addition to Colin Mockery, there are non-Canadians who also relish coming back to Dad's. Scott adds it. Some of the other Second City folks. Of course, the pandemic has made this also difficult, near impossible. How does an artistic director plan a season? Well, you have to be able to adapt your plans regularly. And I think for dads, we are an improv-based theater. So we're, we are trained and our skill is to pivot and to, to change with what we're given. 
And I think that's been probably the strongest thing at Dads with everybody, performers, staff, volunteers, is that whatever was thrown at us or whatever change happened, we were able to adapt and come up with another idea to explore. And I think that keeps us going of whatever is going to get thrown at us, we're going to find a way to make it work. We're going to yes and it. Tim Stoltenberg, the new artistic director of Dad's Garage Comedy Improv Theater. More information about their partnership with the CDC is available on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Coming up, our series Speaking of the Arts, today featuring Lisa Cheneau. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. It's time now for our segment, Speaking of the Arts where we hear some of Atlanta's creative artists in their own words. I'm Lisa Cheneau, and my art name is Lee Cheneau. It's a combination of my first and last name. I'm a multimedia figurative painter. I experiment in simple ways with making surreal imagery of women and animals that have symbolic meaning to me. Some of these are near life-size on wood panel with painted costumes made to be put on or taken off, kind of like a giant paper doll painting. I also work with painted canvas. I cut it apart and sew the pieces back together with thick black yarn to make it really obvious that I've made changes. Well, my mom was a young widow and she worked full time, so in order to give me a little after school activity, she sent me to her friend's oil painting class once a week. I was just a shy nine year old and I liked keeping to myself. I would quietly mix colors and my teacher would come by to help me and I would just copy her brush strokes. I started too young to be in her class, but since I was so quiet, she let me stay. And later on, years later, my elective classes in school always included art, and maybe I was a little overly saturated with it. But the urge to create has always been so exciting to me, and and I love to lose myself in the process. Just taking a walk is a great motivator for me because my thoughts turn around and help me figure out what to do next with an in-process piece. I also find inspiration in old-fashioned children's toys, especially paper dolls. Um, Seeing beautiful clothing, uh, like fashion, it makes me want to paint an outfit for one of my figures. When painting figures, I place the eyes in early on so that the gaze of the subject I'm working on takes hold, almost making me fall under a spell, making me really focused. It reminds me of reading a really good book that I can't put down. My husband, Wilfertese, helps me maintain a positive attitude. He's my secret weapon for sure. He has carpenter skills and helps me make the wood panels I've been working on. So, I mean, there is not much more motivating to me than a gorgeous surface to work on. Music moves me to become very focused and absorbed. Of course, I'm inspired by historical artists, namely Antony Gaudi, Frida Kahlo, Henri Rousseau, Gustav Klimt, um, and Henry Darger. I visit galleries and art exhibitions because viewing art, even if it's nothing like what I make, uh, it sets off a spark and sends me back into the studio with a renewed energy to face whatever piece I'm working on. I moved to Atlanta when I was in my early 20s, straight after graduating from SCAD in Savannah. Um, I was renting all around town in Cabbage Town and Inman Park, Decatur, while working a lot of different jobs. The people I wound up living near or working with have become my close friends. Uh, Most of them are musicians. My husband is a musician. Uh, Others are writers um, and of course plenty of visual artists. My husband is from here so my footing feels really firm in Atlanta. The diverse fabric of this city obviously influences me without me even realizing it. 
I like to see new art in open studio events at places like the Goat Farm and Mint. Uh, they're right on target for seeing new art as well as art in process. Occasionally, art studio warehouses have special events like at South River Art Studios where they feature dramatic fire-burning metal sculptures out front and the artists show work inside all along with live music as it's just like a big carnival. I frequent Marsha Wood Gallery, White Space, 378 Gallery, Swan Coach House, Different Trains Gallery, the Contemporary, MoCA, oh, there's so many. Um, and there's temporary art events organized by Flux Projects. Um, of course, it's always great to get to the Beltline and see ever-changing art there, as well as all the new murals that pop up all over town. That was Speaking of the Arts, today featuring Lisa Cheneau. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., we'll celebrate the first day of Black History Month with author Cassine Gaines. His book, Footnotes, The Black Artists Who Rewrote the Rules of the Great White Way, tells the story of the 1921 musical comedy Shuffle Along. The production featured an all-black cast and was the most significant achievement in black theater of its time. If you missed part of today's show, you can catch up on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you'll find our complete archive of interviews, so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Troves. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes, and we want you to connect with City Lights on social media. Share your feedback with us on Facebook at WABE City Lights, or check out our pictures and videos on Instagram, where we are at City Lights underscore Lois Reitzes. And of course, I'd love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thank you for listening to W-A-B-E Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate. And thanks.